The New Testament reading is Matthew 14, 1 through 21. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men, beside women and children. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning on the Baptism of the Lord Sunday. And today we return to our series in the Gospel of Matthew, looking specifically at these passages in chapter 14. So before we turn to this text, let us turn together to the Lord in prayer. God our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for this passage. I do pray that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions to this text, and that the gospel that we hear proclaimed in these pages, Lord, that you, through your spirit, would apply it more fully and more deeply to our head, to our hands, to our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if someone asked you what most characterizes the modern world, what would you say? And this is a very, very big question, and cases could justly be made for many different answers. But I want to direct our attention to the answer given by the 20th century Italian philosopher, Augusto Del Noce. He argues that more than anything else, what most basically characterizes the modern world, in contrast to earlier ages, is the eclipse of the idea of authority. What most basically 
characterizes us is that when we hear the word authority in contrast to those previous ages, it gives us pause. We're conditioned not to like it. We're told it's just another word for oppression. We're made to believe that we should be suspicious of any and all authority. However, Del Noche argues that what we have come to understand as authority is not authority in its classical sense. What we have done is to confuse and to conflate authority with mere power. But Del Noche insists that we must be careful to distinguish, distinguish between authority and mere power. And what is power in this sense? Well, it is mere strength and force and coercion. It's asserting my will on other people, forcing them to do what I want them to do. It's the ability to force and coerce and control and impose my will, my preferences, and my desires, but not so true authority. And having lived through World War II, Del Noche saw firsthand the abuse of mere power at the hands of Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini in his own country of Italy. However, Del Noche points out that the original root for the word authority comes from the Latin word algere, which means to make grow, and from Augustus, which means he who makes grow. Del Noche points to the family as one paradigm for proper authority. As the father and mother physically generate the child and nurture and grow the child physically and also in terms of educational and ethical formation, the parents practice true authority. Authority, then, is the proper context for growth and flourishing. And the parents here have authority because they are charged with growing and maturing and properly forming the child. This is not mere power. This is not the parents flexing their strength over the child for the sake of coercion and control. No, this is true authority, and so it is for the sake of maturation and growth and flourishing. Authority is not something the child should escape. True and good authority is the context in which the child develops from the acorn to the oak tree. But when we hear authority, we can only think of mere power, and so it holds no sway in our hearts. And losing this classical notion of authority will stunt our hearts from reaching out to Christ, because in Christ we find the true king, the highest and most proper authority. And so we find the loving God who cares for and nurtures his children, serving them and growing them into what they were meant to become. And this is the good authority of the true king. And we should want to be fully ruled by this authority. This, in fact, is the blessed promise that the King Christ gives his people. But if we can't stomach the idea of authority or if we conflate authority with mere power, we will not desire the reign and the rule of our good and gracious God. Instead, we will confuse Christ's true authority with the mere power of another ruler that we find in the passage, Herod. And as we will see, Herod has no true authority, only power and coercion 
and force and the imposing of his will. And so let us look at this passage under three headings. The appeal to authority, the rejection of authority, and the reality of authority. Let's look first at the appeal to authority. And in the first part of the passage where we find the account of Herod's actions, we actually do see one true act of authority, and this is from John the Baptist. We learn that Herod has taken the wife of his brother and he has married her. And in response to this, we find that John continually confronts Herod. He says to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And several times in Matthew, we find actions judged by the standard of being lawful. And in these instances, we find the same Greek term, existed. The same term that's used here by John. For instance, in chapter 12, when the disciples are picking heads of grain, the Pharisees charge them with doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And later in that same chapter, Jesus tells the Pharisees that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And here, John tells Herod that taking his brother's wife is not lawful. John has in mind here Leviticus. For instance, in Leviticus 20, 21, we are told if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. And as one commentator notes, what Herod is doing here by the standards of Leviticus is considered a form of incest within the family. Yes, Herod is violating the law of God and something is not lawful if it breaks this law. And so the term here used by John Existen is here translated as lawful, as in what he's doing is not lawful. However, there is an instance of this term in Matthew in chapter 15 that is not translated as lawful in the ESV. Jesus tells us in an episode that we will look at soon, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Here an action is described not as not lawful, but as not right. And existent here is translated as right because there is no Old Testament condemnation. It's not explicit that you should not take bread away from children and give it to the dogs. The quote is wrapped up in a more complicated exchange we'll look at later in another sermon. But Jesus just supposes that everyone naturally agrees it's not right to feed animals at the expense of children. It is not existent to do this. And the standard Greek dictionary for this term, it gives the following definitions. To be authorized for doing something, to be right, authorized, permitted, proper. John says to Herod, what you have done is not proper or right or authorized. In some way, it's wrong like feeding an animal at the expense of a child is wrong. And so this points us to a bigger notion of lawful than we might tend to operate with. For something to be lawful, it is existent. It's right and proper and authorized. And of course, to speak of something being authorized is to speak of an action having an authority behind it. And Herod's actions, they have no authority. But where would such authority come from? Well, it would come from a lawgiver, 
it would come from a creator. It's right and proper and authorized for parents to care for their children. Remember that for Del Noche, family is a paradigm of proper authority, that of the loving and nurturing family that matures the child and leads the child into a life of flourishing. This is how the creator has established the world. This is how the lawgiver has established the world. And so to speak of existence is to speak of an action being accord with the way of the world, with the natural order. Again, it would be unnatural for parents to feed animals at the expense of children. This would not be an exercise of authority over the child. The proper authority, rather, is nurturing and caring for the child. To do this, to feed the animal at the expense of the child, would be a simple act of mere power over the child. In the same way, it's improper, unnatural, wrong, and unlawful for Herod to take his brother's wife. Parents must nurture children. And similarly, marriage is meant to nurture the members of the family. But here, marriage has become a context for power, for Herod exercising his will over his brother. By the standards of Christ's Jewish contemporaries, this is a form of incest. And at the very least, by the standards of common sense, this is a form of adultery. And just as we know parents must care for their children, we know that adultery is improper and wrong. It's unauthorized. It's unlawful. In Romans 1 and 2, Paul tells us that when we look upon the world, when we look upon creation, we see it with the moral law of God written and inscribed upon our hearts. And we find many examples of this. For instance, Aristotle and his Nicomachean Ethics he gives us a list of vices that we should avoid, and these actually bear a striking resemblance to much of the Ten Commandments. He tells us to avoid spite, shamefulness, envy, adultery, theft, murder. As a human observing the natural order, even without scripture, Aristotle comes to a firm conviction that adultery is wrong. So when John says to Herod, it is not existent for you to have her, He's saying it's against the law of God precisely because it's out of line with the created order. The law of God is how to be human in the created world. God gives us commands to nurture us as parents do children. Parents feed and nurture and care for their children, and they give commands to their children so they will grow and mature into what the child should become. The same is true for our good and gracious God. God, our creator, has authority. And so he cares for us and he nurtures us for the sake of our growth and flourishing. And so we shouldn't be surprised that God's commands are woven into the natural world. We should not be surprised at Aristotle's resonance with the moral law of God. And Aristotle tells us ethics is a matter of flourishing, of happiness, of living the good life. And this makes sense if ethics is about living in line with the way that the world actually is. The same is true for the moral law of God. It would be cruel if God's law and our flourishing were actually at odds with one another. No, God gives us the law so that we can be properly human and so we can flourish. So when John tells Herod, it's not lawful or right or proper or ethical or moral for you to have her, 
John is not only speaking as a Jewish prophet who knows this is wrong because of Leviticus. John is also speaking as a human who knows that this violates God's good created order. John is speaking the very same message that Herod himself should be hearing from his conscience. John is raising his voice with Aristotle. And if you remember, Aristotle also tells us that murder is wrong. And this too, Herod will do. Which brings us to our second point, the rejection of authority. Herod here has flaunted both the Old Testament moral law and the natural order, two things that go together, and he's done this by taking his brother's wife. John speaks out against these actions, and how is it that Herod responds? Does Herod engage John in a kind of ethical dialogue? Does Herod try to make a case for what he's doing? No, Herod doesn't do any of these things. Herod doesn't care at all for what's lawful or right or proper or authorized or natural. So then, if that's the case, then what do we have left? Again, as Del Noche tells us, without authority, all we have is the imposition of the will. All we have is force and coercion and my power against yours. If there's nothing out there that we can appeal to, no larger natural order, then all we have are my will and preferences and desires against yours. If there is no lawgiver, no creator, then there can be no true authority. There's nothing that stands outside and over both of us by which we might hold one another to account. There's no standard that we are both called to conform to. No, there is only force and coercion and control. And this is exactly what we see with Herod. John, you say this is wrong. Well, I disagree. And just to show you that I'm right, I'm going to use my power to lock you up and to shut you up. And I am going to keep on doing what I'm doing. And we see where this approach leads Herod. On his birthday, during this great party, during this lavish feast, his niece dances for him. And so stricken is he by the dance that Herod essentially promises to give her anything that she asks for. And after consulting and conspiring with her mother, she requests the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And this puts Herod in a very difficult situation. But this is not a moral or ethical dilemma for Herod. This is not about struggling to do what is lawful or natural or authorized. No, this is about power and will and force and coercion and, and, and what might actually jeopardize that. Earlier in the passage, Matthew tells us, And though Herod wanted to put John to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Herod actually wanted to kill John. Deep down, he desired what his niece asked for. But the reason he's held back from this unjust killing, it's not because of some sense of ethics, but because of fear. Herod feared the people. He feared their power and what they could do to him. The people believed that John was a prophet, and who knows what the people could and would do if Herod made them too angry. But there's also another group that Herod fears all those present at the party who witnessed the oath. 
And if he does not make good on his words, he would appear weak and dishonored and flimsy and meager and unable to fulfill his boasts. And so what is Herod's dilemma? It's not a matter of deciding what's right and proper and lawfulized, or sorry, lawful and authorized and natural. No, it's a question of what group is Herod going to keep happy? Is he going to try to please those who think that John is a prophet or his distinguished party guests? The dilemma is that he cannot act in a way that pleases both groups. His exercise of mere power will please one group and will frustrate the other. And so what is it that Herod desires above all else? His own power and coercion and control, his ability to impose his will on others, and so he decides to please the important people at the party over the common people and their love for John. He makes good on his oath because it seems to him the best way to stay powerful. And so his ethics is based on the question, what group am I going to please? And in our modern society, we are all Herod. Before anything else, our key ethical question has also become, what group am I going to please? And this can be very subtle. This happens whenever we begin to value people's estimation and opinions over God's good order. For instance, to, refer, uh, to return to, to family as a paradigm for authority, consider the following scenario, one, one that I can sadly relate to as a parent. You're frustrated or you're angry at your child and you say something mean to them. Something not intended to grow or nurture them, but only something to coerce or to control a situation. Something to bring about a quick change of behavior with no thought to the development of their character. And right when you say this, you notice that the window is open and your neighbor has walked by at just the right moment to hear that cutting comment. You feel terrible, but your dilemma is ultimately that of Herod. You're sorry, but you're not sorry because you've traded true authority for mere power, not because you violated the created order, not because you've done the verbal equivalent of feeding your child's food to the dogs. No, you're sorry, just like Herod was sorry, because you've embarrassed yourself in the eyes of those you would like to impress. You have not pleased who you wanted to please. You have dishonored yourself in the eyes of your next door neighbor. And this happens all the time in many ways. For instance, maybe we're saying things we shouldn't say and suddenly we realize that our conversation is being overheard. We're sorry, but what we're sorry for is that our conversation has been found out, not because of the words that we've actually said. We have not pleased the people we seek to please. Again, as it was for Herod, ethics is reduced to the question of what group will I please? And this dynamic can push us to very bad places. Again, without an ethic that can call all groups to account, that can show the ways that all of us have failed rightly to live within the created order, all we have is preference and will and power. 
And so ethics becomes primarily a matter of fear, of pleasing those we see as powerful, as trying to be like them, and doing everything that we can not to run afoul of their opinion. For instance, the, the writer and professor Jeffrey Bilbrow, he alerts us to a strange phenomenon in our modern age. He points out that more and more companies and organizations are offering trips wherein readers and listeners can now vacation with other readers and listeners. And he highlights one such trip that will bring together fellow fans of one particular American news outlet for an 11-day cruise around New Zealand. What makes this possible? Why is it that we would want a vacation with strangers who share an affinity with the same news source rather than with our family and our friends? Well, because of the advent of social media and increasing political polarization, ethics becomes more and more about what group am I going to please? And really, this is just another way of saying what group am I going to belong to? As Bilbro writes, we can identify ourselves by the media we consume. Are you a Fox News watcher, an NPR listener, a New Yorker reader? And so ethics, rather than worrying about what is proper or right or natural or authorized or lawful, becomes about what I need to do to toe the party line, what I need to do to stay in the good graces of those people I want to please. And just like Herod, we have to choose between pleasing one group and frustrating another. And this decision becomes our new ethical dilemma. And when we're sorry for something we've done, what we're sorry for is offending or running afoul of that group we'd like to please. But this becomes ever more difficult, especially in light of social media and the advent of what has been called cancel culture. The recently deceased Polish philosopher and sociologist, Zygmunt Bauman, he warns us against groups becoming swarms. He writes, swarms tend to replace groups. Swarms assemble, disperse, and come together from one occasion to another, each time guided by different invariably shifting relevancies and attached by changing and moving targets. And Bilbero points out that this is exactly what happens with online mobs. They come together, whatever their ideological orientation, to demand blood from some person or figure. They come together, they swarm, they destroy, and they depart. And this is the inevitable result when ethics becomes a matter of pleasing a group. The group you're trying to please will either control you by way of a coercive power, or it will destroy you for acting in a way that they disapprove of. And please recognize that this affects all of us. All of us are prone to make ethics a matter of pleasing a group. All of us are prone to be Herod. Personally, there is an audio program that I listen to regularly, and sometimes I'm surprised by just how far it has to push for me to disagree with it. I want myself to be someone that the host would like. I want to be someone that the host would find interesting and sensible. And sure, I'd love to go on a cruise with fellow listeners, but I immediately start to wonder, what would I have to do in order to impress all of those fellow passengers? Yes, I'm thankful for this audio program, but being pleasing to its fan base is no basis of ethics. And that, in its own subtle way, is how we become Herod. 
And so what is it for you? It's certainly something. Perhaps one question you can ask yourself is if you have merchandise from some program or organization like this that you've bought to let people know what kind of person you are. Mugs, pens, bumper stickers, t-shirts, etc. There is a place for this. But remember, pleasing a particular group can be no basis for an ethic. So ask yourself, are you willing to say unpopular things in truth and love? How deeply in your own heart are you taken with being seen as one of the good ones, one of the sensible ones, one of the enlightened ones, one of the scientific ones, one of the non-backward ones, one of the smart ones, one of the sophisticated ones, one of the successful ones, one of the conservative ones, one of the progressive ones? This will not bring you happiness. This will undo any real basis for ethics. And this will slowly whittle away your love and your courage and your intellect and your integrity. This will slowly make you Herod. And so let us turn to the third point, the reality of authority. So then, where is it that we're supposed to find true authority? Well, this passage shows us, but it's not in Herod. Rather, we see it in the true kingship and authority of Christ. Again, recall the family as a paradigm for true and proper authority. The parents have authority insofar as they are fulfilling their call to care and nurture and grow and mature their children. Authority is for the purpose of growing those under one's authority, of leading them into flourishing. And in Christ, this is precisely the kind of authority that we see. First of all, we see that Jesus mourns and laments the murder of John. He cares deeply for John. And as Christ prays and laments in the desolate wilderness, crowds come to him. They're seeking Christ. They need Christ. And Christ responds not because he wants to please the crowd. If that were the case, he would be pleasing them in order to elevate his own status in their eyes. That's how Herod responds to crowds. That's not what Christ does. Rather, we read, Jesus had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Christ responds to the crowd because he has compassion on them, because he loves them, because he cares for them, because he longs to give them what they need. And when the day is done, Christ's disciples urge him to send the crowds away so that they can go into the village and buy food to eat. Christ, however, insists that the disciples give them something to eat. And blessing what little food is present, five loaves and two fish, Christ gives the disciples food to distribute. And all those present, a crowd of thousands, all of them eat until they are satisfied, and there are even baskets left over for each disciple. How is it that this shows us the true authority of Christ? Well, we find here the king who cares for his people. He spends all day healing their sicknesses, and he makes sure that each and every last one of them has the food that they need. Like a loving parent, his authority over his people is one that grows and nurtures them. And Jesus' miraculous feeding in the wilderness, it's meant to point the reader back to another miraculous feeding in the wilderness. After their deliverance from Egypt, the people of Israel were fed in the desolate wilderness 
by manna, by the bread from heaven. And truth be told, this manna actually is meant to point us forward to Christ. As Jesus declares in John 6, after feeding a great crowd, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Christ himself is that manna. Christ is that bread from heaven. He becomes the very food that nurtures and grows and matures us. For we too eat this bread that the crowds ate. We too see Christ magnify a few loaves to feed his people, all of his people, all those who have placed their faith in him through the long history of God's people. Each Sunday, we eat this bread from heaven, the body of Christ, as we partake of the Lord's Supper. But as Christ tells us, the bread that we eat is his body broken for us. And in today's passage, we read that before Christ distributes the bread, he breaks the loaves. Before this bread was to be eaten and given as nourishment to the people, it needed to be broken. God became human in Christ, and his humanity was broken as these loaves are broken. Christ's body was broken for us. Why would this be? Well, because of the crowds, all of us, we are Herod. Herod killed John, but these same crowds who daily do what we do in our hearts will kill Christ. And Christ is not interested in pleasing the crowds. He's interested in caring for them. He's interested in what is best for them. And so inevitably, he will make them angry. And these crowds will kill him. But it will not be Christ's killers that put his body on a platter, as Herod did to John. No, Christ himself will put his body on the platter. Again, Christ is the bread of life, the manna that feeds his people. Yes, the crowds will take his life, but Christ gives it willingly. Christ came for this purpose. Christ has true authority. Unlike Herod, who takes the life of his people Christ gives his life for his people. At the very beginning of this passage, Herod is afraid because he fears that John has been resurrected. And if that's the case, if there is a resurrection, then Herod will face judgment. If that's the case, then Herod cannot escape divine punishment for breaking God's good order. If that's the case, then neither can we escape the perfect justice of God. And that is the case. There is a resurrection, and we all will come face to face with the uncompromising justice of God that will call each and every one of us to account. But this is why Christ came, to take this justice upon himself and unite us in fellowship with God the Father. Christ is true authority because Christ gives us what we need, and what we need above all else is God. Deep and loving communion with God is the ultimate basis for human flourishing. God is our Father, 
And God is our ultimate parent, and we need his love to become fully human. And so we must be reconciled to God. And this is what Christ does. He is the king who gives his life, who suffers the punishment of death upon the cross so that his people can be brought back to their true father. He takes the punishment that we deserve for being Herod, and Christ gives us his righteousness. His body is broken for us, and he feeds us with it. In weekly, we eat Christ. We eat the bread of life, tasting the very promise that Scripture proclaims when we partake of the Lord's Supper. And as we eat, we are nourished and we grow. God has not fed animals at the expense of his children. No, God has fed his children at the expense of himself in Christ Jesus. And this bread upon the altar, it really does change us. If we eat it by faith, it really does grow us. If we eat it by faith, we become more like Christ. If we eat it by faith, we are nurtured under the rule and reign of Christ's great authority as our true king. Augustine writes the following in the voice of Christ, showing us how the Lord's Supper is different than any other meal. I am the food of the fully grown. Grow and you will feed on me. And you will not change me into you like the food your flesh eats, but you will be changed into me. We do not transform the bread of this altar into us. Christ, the one on whom we feast, transforms us into his image. Come, feast upon Christ. Come, embrace the king with true authority who has given his life for you. Come, grow into all that God has created the human to be. Come and eat. The Father loves you more than you could ever fathom. You are his child. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are for all that you've given to us in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for his good and loving authority. We pray, Father, that we would receive Christ more deeply and follow him more fully, accepting that loving authority by which we become what you, Father, lovingly intend us to become. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.